Hello, welcome to uh, the next edition here of the Death Labs podcast hosted by Netenrich, where we talk about all things threat research. I'm excited to be joined, joined by Maris Raymer, uh, a partner engineer of Google. So uh, tell us a little bit about, uh, about yourself, Maris, what you've been doing with your career, and uh, we'll go from there. Well, hi. Um, so to start at the very beginning, about a billion years ago, I was a cook and I was in culinary school. And around the time I realized that I was going to die with probably $5 to my name and a broken back, uh, that I was like, I need to go ahead and change careers. So I did go ahead and go into security, um, IT security specifically. I did the help desk route, which worked up into analyst route, indications and warnings, uh, moved into the SOC, um, was a senior security analyst for a while, moved into security engineering, mostly writing Splunk content and alerts, stuff like that. I was a TAM for a hot minute, did some work with Blue Team, also for a hot minute for reasons. Uh, and now I am a partner engineer at Google. Um, so, you know, in the, in the time of uh, of your career, uh, you know, you've covered a wide variety of things. You know, what, what from your viewpoint has changed, you know, because you've done some former IR, some former threat research, you know, what what's different over the time you got started as a WeSOC analyst to today? Well, I mean, it goes without saying that attacks, some attacks have become a lot more sophisticated. Uh, it used to be that an attacker might just blow away the front doors and you'd be able to write an alert that's just looking for multiple fail authentications in X amount of time, uh, and that would work. Mm -hmm. um, and as years have gone on, obviously, as that entire community has gotten larger, um, it doesn't work anymore. Like you have to write stuff that's more clever, which is really hard to do with with legacy tools. Um, you know, it, what you'd be looking for then would be instead of just a, a blast of failed authentications, instead you're looking for a certain kind of authentication with a certain token or um, uh, you, two times per username every minute for 24 hours when that's an expensive search to run, if we're talking about Sims here, that's a very expensive search to run. Um, you know, it's just, it, it got more, it got more difficult, right? And so there's, there's been some stuff that, you know, I think you'll always have the low hanging fruit of attackers who are just firing stuff off and, and looking for stuff that's open. Um, APTs and other things like that, things where you're being very targeted, which again, with the increase in cyber crime, whatever you want to call it, ransomware, all that fun stuff, that stuff is getting very targeted. And that's, our, our tools are catching up with that, which I think is uh, important, cr critical, I would say, depending on which customers you're supporting. Right, well, I mean, we're always catching up one way or the other, because, you know, the attackers are doing things in private, we're doing everything open. So it's, there's always something new to find, which is good yes. because, I was a latchkey kid in the 80s and I have no attention span. <laughs> well, it's just, you know, people do obviously things mostly for, for fun and profit, especially in that, um, in that sphere of work. And that's kind of a, a good thing and a bad thing. If you're a little kid, right, you, you get to learn a lot of stuff. It feels really good to learn that stuff. Um, if you're trying to detect that as an adult, it becomes, again, more difficult to do that because you're not inherent, like you can't train everybody to look for that kind of work and that kind of attack. Um, it's, 
it's too expensive and some would argue it's too granular, especially for most SOCs, most security organizations that aren't 100% security focused, right? So you're looking, you need to look for the common denominator more often than not. And that's fine for probably about 80% of the time, but that 20% is, is a killer, so. Right. Um, so no, I think you make uh, make an interesting point. I, yeah, I wanted to circle back to a question because it was a curiosity, right? You, you, you said you went from culinary school to IT security. Like what brought you to security specifically, you know, versus, you know, I don't know, any, any other things, right? You know, that the pantheon of job possibilities that are out there. Sure. And just as a, as a side note, I was absolutely approached over double digit amounts of times about going into sales. So we'll put that one out there. I didn't go that avenue. I kind of am at that avenue now. It's kind of pre-salesy, post-salesy. But anyway, how I got into this specifically, um, I, it's kind of funny, right? Uh, so at the time, um, I was just coming out of culinary stuff and, and kind of finding something else. Uh, my mom was diagnosed with cancer. Um, and so I moved back home to help her and to kind of be there for her because my dad traveled a lot. And so I remember there was one night I was on her computer downstairs and I was like, I have to find something else because a little flag went off in my head where I was like, you know, I'm, I'm early twenties. Right. And I, if I needed to help my mom with something financially, um, I can't do that right now. And in fact, I'm nowhere close to being able to do that. There are some months where my job working for the school as an assistant around the security sphere or the, the culinary sphere at that time, um, isn't going to pay me enough to do that. And so I opened up a, uh, we have a community college nearby, Collin College. Uh, at the time it was Quad C. Um, and I was just curious, because I was like, what, what can I do? Because I also want to have interest in it as well. I don't want it to just be a money thing. If it was just a money thing, for me, I'd go be like a SharePoint admin and I would drive white Maseratis around all day because but like, I don't want to do that. A lot of people don't want to do that. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah. Um, so I looked at the catalog, right? And I just went to something that I had the, the vague interest in, which is security. That's the interesting part. Any analyst, any person who's in IT help desk will generally always say, they're like, ah, oh, security. Like that's the kernel of interest for them. That's what they want to do. That's the thing that makes them excited. It's not the going through millions of like audit logs and stuff like it's that, it's that finding the thing. So uh, I went through. And I found that uh, Quad C had actually uh, spun up a cybersecurity program. And I was like, that's awesome. Also has a lot of math in it. And I am not a clear word to say for this podcast, but I am very bad at math. Uh, and mm. I wanted to challenge myself, honestly. I don't mean to play to a stereotype, but I was really bad at math. I still am. But I wanted to challenge myself. And so I went in, I applied for that. And Again, like I did my I did my stuff out of order. Uh, I was supposed to apparently take Network Plus first because that's the the first step into that. And instead, I took CCNA one, which was a nightmare because picture being a cook and previous to that, no technical experience really. Um, and then having someone say, "Here's subnetting. We're gonna quiz you on this in like a week and a half because it's an expedited course." But I did it, and that's 
for me, that was really cool. So once I was able to do that, then I moved along that line and I was able to sort of just continue that. I did get lucky a lot with career jumps specifically. Um, I think if I was going to give anybody advice, unsolicited advice, uh, everyone's going to say networking is very important, not just obviously networking, networking, but like people networking. That's mm-hmm. huge. You're, you're, it, oh. Most often you're not going to find the job online and say, oh, I want that. And then things will just click for you to get there. You're going to know mm-hmm. someone, you're going to meet someone, you're going to have an ISSA meeting with someone who's like, hey, I heard about this thing. And that's kind of where it starts. So oh. there's that. I would say the flip side of that is as somebody who hires and is a hiring manager, one of the most miserable things I have to do short of like layoffs, that's the worst beyond layoffs is hiring because it's just, I'm having the same conversation a hundred times. I'm checked out in 30 seconds. I don't even know what I'm saying. And in about 60 seconds, I know if this is even worth my time to have a conversation, if it's coming through recruiters or monster or whatever, whatever the cool kids are using, it's in 60 seconds. You have to, you have to build your own Rolodex, especially if you're coming out, especially if you're coming out of something like community college, which I think carries a bit of a stigma Um, for anybody out there that would think that might be a stigma. I, I I mean, granted again, um, I got lucky with a lot of the stuff and a lot of the networking that I made, but I don't have a bachelor's. Like I haven't had the time to go back and get a a bachelor's or anything else like that. Like I got, I have an associates. I also have an associates in culinary, culinary arts, but like that, what does that mean the long-term here? But uh, I work for Google now and it's really cool because you don't think that that would exactly happen uh, when you're thinking about that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I know know Google has taken kind of alternative paths of of hiring people that don't involve, hey, get a degree at a computer science institution. You know, I think they've been sponsoring like coding boot camps and stuff like that, because you you don't need a four year degree to write software. You know, it it helps in certain areas. My undergraduate degree is in theoretical astrophysics. Yes. Okay, you're good at math. Uh, well, kind of, right? You know, <laughs> it's it, 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 when you're talking about uh, my senior thesis was measuring the distances between galaxies, right? You know, so you're doing this math, and they're like, you know, pi, you can round that round that to one, and you kind of wait, like three point one four. I, I I get the move a couple of decimal places. Roll this back. Why one? It's like when you're dealing things that are like to the third, or fourth, fifth power. This factor of three is just immaterial in the grand scheme of things. Just simplify it. Call it one. You know, we just want to know if something is to the fourth or fifth power. That's about as close as we get. Um, oh, so, yeah, that was that was. So you think you're, you're good at math and it was more like you're good at realizing that any attempt at real accuracy is fictional. You're just trying to get somewhere <laughs> ballpark. <laughs> I was about to say, you're trying to ballpark it. And that's okay when you're dealing with something like space. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. we haven't really gone much farther past the moon aside of unmanned objects. So, I mean, it doesn't really need to be precise. We're not landing anything anywhere. Crashing, yeah, we're, we're pretty good at crashing things. Oh, we're, we're fantastic at that. Just aim for the big red thing. You'll nail yes. it every yeah. time, probably. Yeet. So, um, 
And, and, and just as a, you know, as a random aside, it's like, I've been an adjunct and, and like, I'm actually, you know, believers, I think the entry level college degree for cybersecurity should be community college, right? Is, is this notion that, Hey, you need a four year computer science degree and then a master's and then your GSEC or CISSP. And you, you start your career with 150 grand in debt. Now, in this industry, you'll pay it off, right? So it's 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 it's, but it's still a hardship. It is silly because I don't know uh, what from my undergraduate degree. Well, all right, you know, I, I guess I, I went back to get a master's and finishing a PhD. So I redid all the computer science undergrad courses with twenty years of experience to be able to say with full authority, I don't need to know a single thing that these courses <laughs> teach me. I have never used Java. I will never use Java. Any engineer I'm going to hire is not going to be programming in Java. The 90s are calling. Sun Microsystems is dead. It's dead. It's decayed in the body. Why are we still reading its will? It's it's over, man. It's over. Um, but, you know, that's the the world that it lives in. And it makes no sense versus I want to train people to do the work. Right. Which brings us to like, I want to prepare them to be system admins, network admins in the SOC. And they really just need a base level of information. Right. We don't need scholars or big thinkers uh, or anything like that. It's just it, people do do the work who have a aptitude to learn and yeah. some creativity between the lines and figure things out. And that's not something, you know abusing people with four to six years of college necessarily produces. And I think I completely agree. Um, personally, my experience with that has been that when I've, I've been able to corner some hiring managers and be like, why are you requiring this? Uh, the, the consensus generally seems to be that they have so many applicants that they are actually looking for something to uh, reduce the number because I'm sure that much like you don't like interviewing. And I also, on the times where I've interviewed for an extended period of time, it's not great fun. And so they're probably looking for some way to sort of, you know, weed out same way where they'll look for like general typos. And you're kind of like, you're going to determine on if you hire this person based on if they have a typo in their resume. Like, I don't know what to tell you, like talent shortage. But um, so having said all of that, um, yeah, I think there's some parts of our field that uh, benefit very, very much from higher, higher education. I think the field of you know, obviously like cryptology, um, anything that is getting into more almost theoretical areas and kind of cutting edge sort of stuff, like that's when like I would want to see that higher, higher like master's PhD or just, you know, a good, good, good bachelor's on that. Um, for those of us just kind of looking to get into the in industry because we like security and we think it's really cool, just be scrappy, right? Like, you know, you need to know networking. Like when, when I was interviewing people, we had a very large problem where we would have people who uh, would come in looking for uh, entry-level SOC position, and they could tell you all of the latest attacks. They could tell you to the T, like, what this did, what this did. It was super great. But then, like, you'd throw out something. It was like, talk to me about the OSI model or, like, like, talk to me about IP addresses or something like we're not asking them to subnet on the spot. I'm also a big fan of not trying to like grill the interviewee because like they need a job and it's money for them so that they can live their life. And so I don't feel it's very kind to just sit there and try to exploit on them. But we are talking about things like IP addresses. 
what does that mean? If you needed to find this information on your computer, what would that mean? What are some things to look for? Like some fundamental knowledge of how communication gets transferred between, you know, A and B. Uh, and we found a big problem there because we had a lot of people who were very interested in security and went straight to the security and skipped the rest of it. Um, and that's hard, that's hard to hire for because then what you're doing is you're, you're hiring someone who has the knowledge that you, you want to teach them, but they don't have the knowledge that I'm not going to sit here and teach you networking, my friend. Like it's not, it can't happen on a job. Right. So, and that, that got tough. So that's what we ran into with that. So I'm, I'm a big fan of, of getting that stuff, your fundamental stuff out of the way. Yeah, no, I think I think a great path into the industry is just network system admin, right? Or cloud admin, or, or cloud engineer now, right? Yeah, uh, these days, because, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, that's what the work is happening on, right? Are these devices, right? Versus, I mean, everybody should probably do a tour of help desk, but I think if you've done any customer service facing job, you've 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 probably got the people skills to survive, right? If if you've managed yeah. to do that and not end in homicide or suicide, then, you know, you'll probably be okay, right? You if, know, if, if you're you've kind done, of- Exactly. If you've done any kind of customer facing stuff, you're going to, I have found that with people who do help desk, uh, they're going to pivot from that point, right? Um, if they can't survive dealing with, with customer issues and, and face on issues and dealing with people personally who just can't seem to remember their password at 2 a.m., um, you're going to go probably in a couple directions. One of those directions is absolutely coding. <laughs> I've met a lot of help desk people that hit help desk and said, I hate this and I never want to talk to another end user ever again. And they go so far in the coding direction. It's beautiful because they get really good at it. But yeah, the rest of us were kind of like, ah, that might not be our jam, but let's get a little bit more specialized with what we're having to talk about and not just necessarily password resets. Is it on yet? All that fun stuff. That's I don't think anyone inherently really likes doing that these days. And if I'm wrong, let me know. <laughs> well, I it's, at some point, like early career and late career, you're going to have to talk to people who don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Like middle career, right? You can get into this. I'm just doing the technical work. All the people around me are technical. Even my frontline manager is technical, who's the buffer for me having to talk to anybody else. And you probably can coast there and you, you have a fine life there. But uh, one of the things I do is expert witness work, right? And I was in a federal trial having to explain Bitcoin valuation to a judge, right? Now, hey, he's a federal judge. He's not an idiot, but his expertise has got nothing to do with, okay, how am I supposed to value these Bitcoins in a dollar settlement based on the time of transaction? Walk me through what this looks like you know, in terms accessible to a lawyer who probably doesn't even read his own email, right? Yeah. You know, he, he, he doesn't operate Word, right? He's got a, he's a federal judge. He's got a clerk writing his opinions for him, you know, yeah. so, but he's the decision maker and he knows the law. So not a bad decision maker, but not an expert and, and the information isn't accessible to him. And I think that's okay too, because I think uh, just to kind of take a little step back on the help desk stuff, 
a big part of where you're going to set yourself apart in the industry is being able to talk to people. It may not be your jam, but being able to translate this to that for people who it's not their job to know that is huge. And I, I think that a, it's an unfortunate thing a lot of us fall into, myself included at times, um, where you're just like, ah, end user. And it's kind of like if I went to the mechanic to get something fixed on my car and they tried to tell me something highly technical about how my car works and I say, I don't know what that means, does that mean I'm an idiot? Because I don't work with cars all day and that's not my area of expertise. Um, does that mean they're an idiot for not knowing what I know about security and risks? It's like, no, like we all need to probably give ourselves some grace on this and just everyone's coming from a different place. Don't, what's the old phrase? I can't remember who said it, doesn't matter, but it's like, don't judge a fish on its ability to climb a tree sort of stuff. Um, right. I think once you can get over that sort of bias that we build up, thanks to those 2 a.m. calls to reset passwords, even though you've told them eight times how to do it, once we get over that, I think that you'll see a big increase in how you network and how you increase your career. Because being able to talk to someone and not talk to them like they're like you think they're stupid. I mean, you run into people all the time who it's like you're you're talking down to this person and you're like to your point is like that's a lawyer. He knows more about the law than I'll ever know if I start now. Like he's not stupid. It's just not what he does. And so help him understand and then he'll help you understand why you should do certain things when you get pulled over. Win-win. Right. It's, it's kind of the same concept, right? It all comes back to, you know, I mean, security is not insular. And and actually, you know, I, that just philosophically, I've always told people it's like security is not a technical problem. It's a human nature problem. You know, it is. I, I, I had this rant earlier today, right? Is you take our earliest documented human texts and we've been killing and thieving since the beginning. We're not going to solve this, this, the security problem because the security problem is just endemic in our nature. People have been stealing forever. You can just do it with greater distance and scale with technology. But the underlying behavior is the same. I mean, social engineering is just con artists on the Internet. You know, yeah. uh, slimy door, door salesmen, except they don't have to put on a cheap suit and actually, you know, walk from place to place. And get their steps in. Yeah. <laughs> Right. If, yeah, no one, no one tracks steps back in the day, right? You know, that that I could do is now now I've got this digital chain telling me, nagging me, hey, you need to go walk. It's like, yeah, mine's buzzed once me. already. It's like, you need to get up and stretch. It's like, I'm not going to do that right now, but I will yeah. in an hour. Yes, yes. Why why do today what you can put off until tomorrow? Um. So uh, coming full circle, like, you know, and we've talked about the human aspects so a bit, uh, you know, what other challenges do you think we're facing around like all this data, right? Going back to smartwatches, nagging us about how many steps are going into. So we've got like SIM and EDR and network and all of the cloud stuff. Yeah, uh, You know, what challenge do you see about operationalizing that and, and how to make sense of it and do meaningful things like how to make my CIO's life not suck? Yeah. So uh, to your earlier, earlier question about what's changed, um, we didn't used to have this many dang tools. I mean, I haven't been in the industry a billion years, but uh, I can tell you that since I have been in it and to now, like, 
holy crap, we've gone through a period of just like everybody has developed these devices and everyone has their own logging formats and all of this stuff is just coming up and it's it's kind of great, but sometimes the, the product feels like they sort of, uh, the product owner like created a problem and then here's the solution for it. And that's just classic sales stuff, right? Um, but that doesn't change the fact that sometimes people will will buy that. And so what ends up happening is you have these companies that have so many signals, so many signals. Like the first company I ever worked for, we did not have that many, right? We had our badge in, badge out system. Um, you know, we had Active Directory logs. I don't even think that they were really being collected anywhere centrally except for the server itself. Um, we just didn't have it. And now it's like you've got maybe two different vendors around your firewalls because one does firewall and IDS and the other one does firewall and, you know, deep packet examination. And one CIO that came on really liked this company and brought that product in and then half implemented it and then left. And now you have a half implemented technology sitting there. And then we just layer on top of that, right? It's, it's great. Um, and your analysts and your data scientists, as the case may be, have to deal with that because they have to watch those for signals that may say that they're getting attacked. So um, I, like I said, I, I wrote Splunk content for about five and a half years. And something that I discovered with that was that like, to my point, tons of signals and how are you possibly going to check all of it to make sure you're seeing everything that you need to see. And also to your point, um, being able to present it in a way that makes your CIO's life a lot easier or your CISO, depending on where you are. Um, Sims are cool. I like Sims. I, I think that um, maybe that's just because I've worked on Splunk content for a, a long time, but I like the idea of having a bunch of basically pieces of spaghetti just in the air and then just like being able to just file them down into a bowl and then like, okay, cool, here's, here's the thing. Um, the difficulty at that point then becomes none of the vendors want to play nice with each other, it feels like. And so you have one firewall vendor who says, oh, well, where this log came from is going to be the host IP. And then another firewall vendor is going to say, well, we're going to call it source IP. And then another one's going to say, we're going to call it SRC underscore IP. And so now if you're going to look for something simple, like what logs have I received in regards to this IP address that's located in there? You now have to do three separate queries unless you are really, really good and and your Splunk or your SIM system has the uh, compute capacity to be able to run a query that can search all of that stuff. That's not going to be most often. You're, you're most often you're going to have your analyst have to go in and say, okay, I'm going to write this query and now I'm going to write this query and I'm write this query and then I'm just going to put them all together manually, usually in Excel, um, and go from there. Sometimes you might get lucky with uh, a really, really good uh, SIM deployment that has like a lot of professional service hours pumped into it, like uh, like Splunk ES, Enterprise Security, if it's really well, well set up. Um, and then that's obviously a really good scenario to be in, but that doesn't, that's not everybody and we can't plan for that. No, I think that's, you know, uh, just the data normalization problem, uh -huh. right? It's, it's if it's the same thing is talked about the same way, you can find answers and information quickly, right? And there's really not that many like audit events, you know, 
I created an object. I destroyed an object. I modified an object. I accessed an object, right? I changed the object's attributes. You know, there's really only a dozen events, really, you know, at its core. And everybody describes them all differently, you know? So the ability to translate that into a normalized data format before it's pumped into a database somewhere is a huge gain. And I didn't appreciate that until I went back to get a PhD in data science and was like, wow, it's miserable programming around all of these edge cases because everything is an edge case. You know, it's a dodecahedron of, you know, suck, you know, to to make this work. If everything's normal, (laughs) yeah. It's like, I could do this with a 20 line Python script if it's all normalized versus thousands of lines you know, and a case of whiskey. Um, And maybe it'll work. And now also we're starting to get into, speaking of just needing data normalization, um, there's a large cloud company that I don't happen to work with and whose name doesn't start with M. Uh, There's another large cloud company who their fields by default as they're coming out of their logs for say like VPC flow logs and stuff, they're like that long. Let me get on camera with that one. They're on like that long. Like they are, it's like, principal.ip.hostname.action.whatever. And it's just prohibitive because I understand maybe that's just how it logs, but I mean, there are some SIM platforms where uh, you can't actually, it can't fit that field. It just runs off the screen because the SIM wasn't coded to actually receive something that long. And that's a silly problem to have. So I'm very pro, very pro data formalization. Yeah, no, it, 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 it's huge and it solves so many problems and simplifies things. Yeah, and that's, uh, that is one of the things that we hear about uh, Chronicle is that if you compare Chronicle to something like, I'm going to pick on Splunk, just again, the time spent. Um, if you compare Chronicle to something like Splunk, um, you know, Splunk, you can install it and you can get data in there within, you know, a day, right? But the problem is, is that you're not, doing that normalization exactly at that time. And so you're kind of, to your point, you're kind of postponing that Band-Aid pull. Like it's like having a toothache and instead of just getting that taken care of, you're just gonna wait for that to get a bigger and bigger and bigger problem. Um, the more log types you stack on top of it and it gets it gets real ugly real fast. Um, the appeal of, of Chronicle and the way that it handles it is that, yeah, it's a Band-Aid pull upfront. You have to make sure that you have those parsers in place so that you are normalizing that data on its way in. Once you do that, though, it's it's good forever. Because here's the other thing is that with Chronicle and, you know, partnered with NetEnrich, we have parsers that are maintained yeah. by us or by you. And that's great because anyone who's ever gone shuffling through the marketplace for other SIM solutions will find there are apps and add-ons that handle the, the data normalization and parsing. Like they're they're having their log source be tied to, to SIM, right? CIM. Um, and so they're, uh, they're maintained by Splunk. They're maintained by the vendor itself of the product. Sometimes they're maintained by a nice gentleman out in Belgium who hasn't updated it in a year and a half. And you're kind of terrified that if he updates it, it'll break. Um, vendors sometimes can't be trusted to be paying close attention to what they're updating. A couple years ago, there was an add-on for Microsoft Logs, Active Directory, that it got updated 
and it changed, I think it was uh, the source name to source type, it just switched the two fields. So that's not in theory a big deal, but if you have queries that are written off of looking for a certain source type and that source type gets changed, all of your alerts break silently. Uh, and that's not good. So having a unified area where you're getting your parsers and, and all that stuff from is really valuable. And I think it's something that people kind of miss out until it's, uh, until it's go time, basically. Right. Well, like I said, I think there's, that there's a lot of people to, to pick on that or a company where felt they feel captive because of the investment it took to, to get it to somewhat functional. But yeah. there's a lot of money in there feeding that's needed to make that engine more or less run kind of on time, you know, yep. after you lowered your expectations enough. Um, so, you know, that, that, I mean, it's a way of life, but I don't know that anybody's happy with it. Um, and, you know, it's kind of, that company's kind of reached the stage where all it really can do is run up the score and there's no other logical path for them to, to go, right? And you've seen that in a variety of industries, right? A company gets market share around a thing, has no clear way to do something else or in addition. So they just run up the score to to keep keep numbers growing. Keep pace, yeah. And yeah, and for sure, again, I don't mean to have this recorded in a podcast, but I don't mean to be throwing a Toyota Dunkathon on this company specifically. I think that their solution is is very solid. I, I quite like it. Um but when it comes to using it as a practitioner and as someone who uh, like came from an analyst background, like I need to find these logs like right now and not 20 minutes from now after I get coffee and just hope that the page doesn't refresh while I'm gone. Um, at this, one of the places I worked, um, we did used to have things that we would kind of call coffee queries where you would uh, hit, you put the boilerplate search in there, you'd hit run and then you'd leave you'd have someone kind of watch your screen for a bit while you went to go get coffee out of the kitchen because that was going to take a minute and a half for sure to say um, to run and get you what you need. And that's great for pulling reports that aren't timely. Uh, that is horrible for an active investigation. Uh, oh, yeah. Anything like your, your boss is standing over you like you need that to be faster. No, so I, it, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's it's a foot race, right? You know, it's it, it, a lot of people are worried about ransomware. There's great detections for ransomware, except there's one problem. By the time it's already happened, right, the attacker is going to let you know, right? Yeah. The, just by the very nature of the attack, it's not designed to be subtle. It's a Molotov cocktail, um, yeah. you know, thousand Molotov cocktails, you know, turning into, you know, a, a European street level protest dance party. Um, <laughs> good times had by some. Um, you can see now I've got this image in my head and I'm, you know, I'm like, I want to be part of that. It's like, I, I feel the burning need to burn something to the ground and I don't even know what I'm mad about. <laughs> that's, I think that's living, uh, I think that's living in America right now. I think we're all feeling a little bit of a, uh, a fire towards some stuff. Right. So um, let's try to bring this back uh, to, to something not work-related or, or something not work-related. <laughs> something, you know, work-related, right? You know, so I, you know, we, we kind of made reference, right? You know, it's it's like an arms race of time, right? And the importance of, of figuring out this stuff early, right? You know, so 
Um, you know, what, what, how does the data and threat analytics and some of the machine learning stuff come into play in that in practical terms, right? You know, specifically in Chronicle, what we're trying to do together as companies, but I mean, even just generally. Well, so the speed of Chronicle, and I'm not going to do a, sh a sales spiel. I can if you want, but the speed of Chronicle really, it's built on Google speed, right? Um, it's fast. Like it's, it's, it's very, very fast. A lot of that is due to that data normalization up front that we talked about with UDM. Um, that makes it so that you can search for your picture. Your boss comes to you and they say, ah, there's a bad IP address, but we want to know if anyone of our of anyone in our environment has ever accessed it before going back at least three months, because that's when the exploit came. That, that'll knock your SIM over. That'll knock your SIM over hard. That's millions and mil probably into the billions of logs because firewall logs, as anyone who's ever looked at them, knows are verbose as heck. Um, for as, as a side note, if you're working with a SIM that is ingest-based, they will tell you to ingest those firewall logs. Choose to do so if you want. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's it's hard. And so that, that idea of just having the speed behind it of saying, okay, I'm just going to put in this IP address, and it's going to check across all these data sources, and that'll be very, very quick. Um, I'm not sure the exact speed. I'm sure someone out there smarter than me knows the the uh, like a good statistic around time. But as someone who's used a bunch of sims and then also Chronicle, uh, it, it's not a question for me. So uh, as for machine learning, like I'm not going to lie. I missed the boat on machine learning. I think it's awesome. I know that there was a it was a big old buzzword there for probably a solid four years. I think we're still kind of in the midst of it. Um, I miss that boat. Um, I think it's amazing. And I think that that's what's going to be helping along with um, AI is not 100% the right word. And I've gotten into this conversation recently a lot. AI doesn't equal automation. Um, AI is different, right? So, But automation, to some degree, is going to speed up the process of looking at most of your security incidents. As someone who used to work as, an, as a SOC analyst, I'm still a big personal proponent of having a, a human eye on that stuff. I think that mm -hmm. we want you want to automate a lot of stuff. You want to take out all the chaff, but then that stuff that you're actually having to have eyes on screen look for, like there's stuff that you kind of need a little bit of that human touch, probably not as much as in other industries like healthcare and stuff. Like I don't think we'll ever fully automate healthcare. Sometimes it'd be nice and sometimes maybe not, but you still kind of need nice that. For call, not for cancer. Yeah, no. Like if you exactly like if you need to go in, you're like, I have a broken arm. Then yeah, let's automate the crap out of that. Let's just get that you get that splint, run that X-ray, whatever. But if you need treatment and care, and you have confusing symptoms, which it feels like everybody does, let's keep a doctor or a practitioner on that who can actually have like a a common sense to that, right? But okay. anyway. No, and so it, it, you know, I got on the data science boat late. Yeah, I don't know about late, right? But the reason I got my PhD is that I had a team. I inherited a team of data scientists at a previous employer. Oh wow! Here, go do machine learning stuff, and they never really produced anything. They love doing statistics and clustering. I'm like, what am I going to do with this? Oh, look, here's a graph. Okay, and. You know, I'm, you know, do you want me to open an art gallery? You know, <laughs> and like post postmortem, 
because like lines you know, every bars. yeah right it's 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 ugly so it must be modern art um <laughs> am I wrong <laughs> no i come from a very artsy family and i completely agree uh, yeah, I, I'm not very artsy, but I think it's because that like most of the early exposures, like modern art, it's like if I can do it, it is not art. <laughs> yeah, I know some of it gets into things like like you know how it's done. I guess the idea done before it, like whatever. But yeah, sometimes it sometimes modern art specifically gets into the realm of like I don't know. That's a very very brief anecdote. We can we can move around this if we want to. Uh, I went to the Dallas Museum of Art one time and there was a modern art exhibit and I was walking through the halls and it was great or wonderful or whatever. And uh, someone had pulled a piece of the plaster off of the wall because they were doing construction in the, the, the halls at that time. And I swear to God when I say that there were three people standing there, hand on chin, looking at it. One of them was looking to see who the artist was. Like that's zero hyperbole like it's just come on guys it's just that's a hole in the it's, wall you should have known when you didn't see a plaque right it's we're not a species meant to last let's <laughs> <laughs> try not to cough into the mic here but <laughs> I, it, 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 it. so uh yeah we, we just keep going off track yeah now we're now in modern art oh right machine learning right um you know so eventually you know i'm trying to get a phd because i'm you know i'm an adjunct i get tired of a bunch of professors saying well you can't do that because you don't have a phd it's like fine i'll go get my phd um and kind of backdoor admission into into data science and and really kind of what my thesis is is like the data science is the least important part of any of that crap you know, I've got Python libraries that can do the work for you that in a couple hour class, I could turn anybody into a data scientist. What matters is who's picking and curating the data to train the system and what features they're using. Like ChatGPT is a great example, right? There have been tons of attempts to create essentially uh, AI driven or machine learning driven, uh, machine learning driven systems to go answer questions or have conversations or create content. The last major one that I can think of was called Microsoft Tay. I, I'm a big proponent of having AI um, go in the direction of trying to free up humans from more mundane jobs that like no one wants to do, right? Like that's kind of a good end goal for me. Like I, that'd be great. I want to free up this is sound weird. I want I want to like free up humans to do like cool like like artistic things, like being able to go back and like pursue passions and do things that are more interesting and less mundane, like less check the box and more of like I am a human with limited days on this planet. What am I going to do with it while I'm here? Does that answer need to be doing like the most mundane jobs in the world for a paycheck so I don't starve to death? Like I screw that. Like, let's get away from that. Like, that's what I want AI to go for. So it's, for me, a bit disturbing and a bit of a bummer to see AI instead being taken to do that creative stuff to like, okay, now we're doing art. Now we're making AI, you know, AI generated music. Now we're doing AI generated code for like cool things. Like that's a wrong direction. Dang it. Like I, I, I want that human element. I don't want it to just be like, 
okay, well, I'm a, I, you know, I, I wrote a book and now I need art for my book. So I'm just going to go into this AI thing and get a piece of art for five bucks, as opposed to someone who's just like, yeah, when I was a kid, I dreamed of doing illustrations for books and that like getting to be their job. I don't know. Um, yeah, that was just kind of a bummer. But I do think as far as like automating stuff within socks, um, anything else like that, especially if it's alert reduction, uh, just because it's like that's a big killer of socks is again, because with all those signals coming in, right, all those signals, well, a lot of those signals are coming from products that like that's their job. Like you have a product that's like an EDR product that's like its job is to send you signals. And so that's like that's one influx. And then you have your antivirus and that's another one. And then you have an IDS or an IPS and that's another set. And it's just whatever we can do to reduce that noise is uh, that, that'll go a long way for, I think, a lot of security folks out there. Well, no, and I think that 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 was the point of bringing it full so uh, full circle back to the SOC, right, is. You take people, their entry-level job is, okay, you've got a master's degree, you've got your GSEC. Now, here's a ticket queue. If you see this, then you escalate it to level two. If you see this, then close the ticket. You, you give them all this education, and then you tell them to turn their brains off until six months, 12 months, and then maybe you can do level two where you can think a little bit. But really, it's stuff that could be automated, right? If it, if it can be reduced yeah. to one binary decision, yes or no, a script can do it. You know, yeah. you, you can automate a lot of the analysis, right? You know, you've done SOC work and research as have I. And, it's, and the reason that we all have to have all the RAM in our laptops is because we got 50 browser tabs open, you know, copying and pasting back and forth to research things. How many tabs do I have open here? I was I just I checking my tabs, honestly. I was just like, uh, yeah, it's right. It's not good. You know, it's like, you know, it's, it's, yeah, you know, it's, I, got, I have got a MacBook here. It's like, can somebody make a 128 gig MacBook so I can open up all the tabs and not have to there and reboot every now and then? You know, or or maybe we can do you know some some smart decisions of data normalizing to to create a world where automation and machine learning are possible. So I don't have to have fifty browser tabs open to tell me, okay, everything about this IP is it good or bad, and just yes. let me know so that the little final mile that requires human effort, you know, I have brain cells left instead of doing control C, control V versus based incident response, where yeah. your mind shuts off because you only get brief windows of attention. It's like what, 20 minutes plus or minus? That's the attention span before a need of a reset or a break. If I think during speeches, it's about 40 minutes. At least that's been my experience. That 40 minutes, my mind, my mind just goes, was there food in the back of this room? Oh, okay. So I, I, I don't go to class. I mean, I, I, I cannot <laughs> learn in a classroom for the life of me. Right. It's, it's, yeah. I get, I get bored when I'm lecturing half the time. It's like, I don't know why you people are sitting here. You know, I, I come into a room. It's like, what's the attendance policy for this class? It's like, I've got an attendance policy. I never went to class as an undergrad. I'm going to make you go, you know, <laughs> I mean, you paid for me, so you should be here, but I mean, if yeah. you, you know, you learn, I'm, not, I'm here to provide you a grade. Everything else you can do on your own. You know, oh, if yeah. you can learn on your own, then I'm going to assess whether you did it based on the assignments. You know, that's, that's all the service here. Other than that, I'm a resource. Um, you know, of pithy anecdotes and potentially 
probably too much salty language for higher education these days but it's unclear. I think as long as you're not like, you're not like a fifth grade teacher, I think it's pretty okay. These days, everything's very connected. I'd be pretty surprised. And that's, and guys, to anybody listening out there who's thinking about trying to get into this field or reasons to get into this field, obviously do it if you have a good passion for this sort of stuff, or if you have some sort of adjacent interest in this, but also being able to be in a field that allows you to pay your bills right and then also allows you to to live by somewhat of your own sort of roles and control is amazing and there's a lot of people who maybe didn't go through that phase where you're kind of like okay i have this is my money for the week i can go to wendy's and get three dollar hamburgers and two frosties put the frosties in the freezer and i'll be good until friday like maybe there's people who didn't go through that phase but Anybody who tells you that money does not play a part in your career choices and that you should just go strictly based on a rainbow that propels you forward, um, I don't know. My advice, personally, as me, uh, I would caution against following that inherently because there is going to be a lot of stuff in this life that you maybe don't enjoy doing. And the most common piece of advice I would give is find something that you want to do. Bonus points if you like doing it but it allows you to do the things you want to do. All right. Well, on that note, um, we'll have to end here because in about 10 minutes, I'm going to get a call from HR. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But I want to thank you, Maris, uh, for for joining us. Uh, And for those of you listening, uh, this is the uh, Death Labs podcast here by NetRich. Uh, We air uh, every other week on Wednesdays. I hope you uh, enjoyed this episode and thank you again, Maris, for your insights and your time. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on, guys. 